From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Driving a truck, I don't have a lot of time, but I do carry um, a skillet and a crock pot that I can plug into the 12 volt system of the truck. This week on our show, we head down to Paoli, Indiana to learn about a nutrition prescription program offering weekly boxes of fresh produce, recipes, and cooking workshops for people managing diabetes. And Josephine McRobbie talks with a business historian about her book, Visualizing Taste, plus a visually stunning Thai curry soup recipe from chef Arlen Llewellyn. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Rural areas are some of the last places to get high-speed internet access. Decades ago, they were also the last areas to receive electricity. Back then, the federal government set up cooperatives to help rural residents pay to install poles and lines to every farmhouse. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine looks at how bringing broadband to rural communities might be more complicated. In Okima, Oklahoma, Wi-Fi hotspots are in demand. The public library got six of the T-Mobile internet hookups in 2018. The waitlist was months long before they eventually got more. It was a constant battle to, to get people off that waiting list, and we don't have that problem now because we have so many. She says logging onto the web is important for the town of 3000. It's not just for kicking it and watching Netflix. Internet access means jobs. And nowadays, most employers are are requesting you fill out online applications for jobs, and that's difficult for people because they didn't have access to it. For most people in cities, it's just a matter of calling up the local cable or telephone provider. But right now, one in five people in rural communities like Okima can't do that, according to the Federal Communications Commission. It's not so different from the situation with electricity nearly a century ago, when it was available in cities, but not small towns or farms. For families, that meant hand-washing clothes and working by the light of a lantern. And old documentaries showed how lack of power could hurt a farmer's pocketbook. It's hard to cool milk right in August if you haven't the right sort of pump or equipment. The milk is sour, so the handler gives back cartons and the farmer loses money. Sour milk, good for pigs, but the milk check won't be so big this month. The solution to all this? The Rural Electrification Act. It gave low-interest loans to rural communities to form rural electric co-ops. Then, they'd set up the electric lines and poles. It'd all be paid off in 30 years through monthly electric bills. Rural broadband faces the same basic challenge as electricity. For-profit companies don't want to invest. Hamid Vahadipur is the CEO of Lake Regional Electric Cooperative, which provides broadband. In rural areas, you can have less than 10 customers for every mile of fiber optics that you have, where in town, that number could go as high as 50 or 70 customers per mile. So it is difficult to provide this kind of service. Bringing broadband to rural areas is more complicated than electricity. One of the reasons, there are already some providers, but they don't always provide truly high-speed access. Co-ops are interested in providing that service, but the cost might be too high even without the need to make a profit. Cooperatives share the cost of building broadband, 
just like they did when they built electricity. Chris Myers is the general manager of the Oklahoma Association of Rural Electric Cooperatives. He says the bills might be too high for smaller co-ops. That cost might be $500 a month. Well, I don't know that people can afford that. Uh, and that's just a number. But, I'm, but just to break even, the cost would be so high that it'd be, it'd be a problem. About $4 billion a year have gone out to telephone companies to get them to expand broadband. Tom Wheeler, the former chair of the FCC, says it didn't work. It wasn't working because we still have this huge swath of rural America that doesn't have access to broadband. Instead, Wheeler says building broadband infrastructure needs to be handled more like roads. Build it once and pay for it and go home. Instead of this trickling out of money um, to companies that were basically telephone companies in the hope that they would expand and build broadband. The FCC estimates it would take about $80 billion to bring broadband to every home. Between Biden's proposed infrastructure bill and CARES Act money, experts like Wheeler remain hopeful that it might happen sooner rather than later. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. When shopping for food online, as many consumers did for the first time in 2020, the visual presentation becomes primary. Josephine McRobbie spoke to business historian Ai Hassano about her research into the history of seeing our food. In 2016, General Mills made the news when the company replaced the coloring and trick cereal with natural dyes made from turmeric, radish, and strawberry. But just two years later, GM went back to artificial dyes, with a spokesperson saying that customers missed the cereal's bright, vibrant colors and nostalgic taste. This tale of technicolor woes isn't a surprise to Ai Hisano, who teaches in the Graduate School of Economics at Kyoto University. Consumers are sometimes uh, stubborn about <laughs> how food should look. Hisano is the author of Visualizing Taste, How Business Changed the Look of What You Eat. The book outlines how government regulation, consumer demand, mass marketing, and ag and tech processes have created the foods available in the average U.S. grocery store. Her book begins in the late 19th century. It's the time when people's eating habits and diets changed quite a lot because of the rise of the food processing industry and also the distribution of food, as well as the beginning of federal regulation or food adulteration. Visualizing Taste is a deep dive into the history of food coloring. Hisano became interested in the topic as a grad student while researching GM's fictional character, Betty Crocker. And here's Betty Crocker herself. And this is what we're so excited about. My new marble cake mix. The company started marketing their packaged foods, like cake mixes and colorful dishes, as a presentation of femininity and creativity. Color got kind of the gendered cultural connotations. So that made me think about the cultural and social history of color in the food industry. As a case study in food color, Hisano traces the development of cost-effective margarine in the 1870s and the subsequent response from butter producers. Dairy industry people were really upset because they thought margarine would destroy their business. So uh, they lobbied 
to the federal government and also state government. So the government enacted regulation that restricted the coloring of margarine. For a few years in New Hampshire, it was even a law that margarine be dyed pink to distinguish it from butter. But margarine producers and marketers figured out some inventive ways around the color restrictions. One was to uh, insert colored capsules along with the margarine in a package so that consumers could color their margarine at home. So that kind of suggests that margarine producers as well as consumers thought the margarine should look like butter or margarine should look like uh, yellow. The color of food or food packaging can give us visual information about whether the item is ripe, rotten, exciting, boring, healthy, or unhealthy. But as Dr. Hisano says, our ideas about safety and dangers, and also how ideas about naturalness are constructed throughout our history and also culture. The modern grocery store developed novel ways over the years to optimize its lighting to sell food. One way to do that was to color the bulb, uh, the, the lights that could make the food look more attractive. Uh, lighting companies like Generator, like GE, developed uh, certain types of lighting which make me redder and also fruits and vegetables uh, greener. So that uh, lighting was used not only to make the entire store brighter, but also to make the each individual food more appealing to consumers' eyes. The development of a moisture-proof cellophane was not just for food safety and ease of purchase, but also aesthetics. Cellophane has become an important part of American life because it lets you see what you're buying. And Producers, well, as well as consumers, I guess, thought the fresh meat should look like bright red. So when self-service stores or supermarkets started their business, they wanted to also make the meat section self-service. But it was quite difficult to package a slice of meat and keep their color red because of the lack of technology in packaging and also refrigeration in the early 20th century. So chemical companies like Dupont and some other packaging companies developed this special film which could control the inside the air inside the package so that it could keep the color of meat red or pink for maybe pork. Recent studies have shown that more people are grocery shopping online, accelerated in part by the COVID-19 pandemic. A sizable number of consumers indicate that they'll continue to shop this way in the future. So what does this mean for the visualizing of taste? At first, I thought digitization and this increase of online shopping would deprive us of rich sensory experience. But it's probably more complicated than it seems. Dr. Hisano recently read an intriguing study of Japanese grocery shoppers. They began to prefer online shopping, even though they can already choose their food by themselves, because store clerks choose food for them and they think store clerks have better skill and better eyes to choose better quality food so it i thought it was really interesting people started kind of relying on other people's senses to get their food i thought maybe We are not really losing entirely our senses, but maybe how we use the senses have shifted. 
That was Earth Eats producer Josephine McGrobbie speaking with business historian Ai Hasano. She's the author of the book Visualizing Taste, How Business Changed the Look of What You Eat. Find more at eartheats.org. that I started out with pre-diabetes and then it went up to diabetic level and then I've got it back down and I've, I've kind of fluctuated back and forth and it's through that process is where I've seen that uh, you know driving a truck is not the best job to work on those levels. That's Greg Emmons. He's a truck driver and a part-time farmer working on managing diabetes and he's a participant in an innovative nutrition program. We've talked on the show before about food as medicine. You might recall a story about Anderson Community Hospital north of Indianapolis. They run a farm on site to provide fresh produce for patients and staff. This week, we're heading down to Orange County to learn about the Southern Indiana Farm to Health Initiative. IU Sustainable Food Systems Science is lending research support to a community-led public health intervention in partnership with Southern Indiana Community Healthcare and the Lost River Market and Deli, a natural foods co-op in Paoli. I spoke with scientist Julia Valiant. She's a research fellow with Sustainable Food Systems Science, the Ostrom Workshop, and the Center for Rural Engagement at Indiana University. This program is called the Nutrition Prescription, or informally the nutrition box and how it works is that the local medical clinic which is a federally qualified health center that has four locations in two rural counties they're recruiting from among their adult patients who have type 2 diabetes a few people with type 1 diabetes and pre-diabetes because the leaders of the clinic and the leaders of Lost River Market some of whom overlap and are actually leaders of both groups. They were really inspired to create a way that more people in their community could learn how to cook with whole foods. And they're also inspired for Lost River Market to source more local produce and to reach more people in the community. And so they developed these box programs and cooking education programs really as like a win-win-win for the participants, for the market, and for the clinic. And they're just trying those out for the first time this year in 2020, and they're having to do it during COVID. So the plan was for people to get together for weekly cooking lessons in a church that has a commercial kitchen and to share a group meal at the end of the cooking class. And to also get a weekly box of produce, local produce, and a recipe to go with that produce. And that is what they would learn how to cook in the cooking class. And that they would do that once a week for three months. And they've been doing that, only they've needed to pivot so that all of it happens online. So instead of meeting at the church for group meals, they've been doing YouTube and the Facebook group to teach people how to cook and get them talking about their cooking. And we have a second group of people who actually are also patients of the clinic, 
but instead of doing the cooking education and getting the food boxes, um, they're serving as a control group. Okay. So they got as an incentive a really nice $60 gift certificate to the market. They're not doing the education. So they're a comparison group or a control group. So we're learning from both groups of people. And so once a week over the course of three months, people would come to Lost River Market, pick up their box of produce, it would have a recipe in it, and they would go online and watch Colin teaching them how to make the recipe. And then they would check in on the Facebook group by posting their picture of what they had made and doing a quiz about that, what that week's lesson was. Because most of the weeks also involved a um, nutrition lesson and it all followed a standard national curriculum called Cooking Matters. Of course, I wanted to talk to the cook. My name's Colin Spear. I'm a senior at Mitchell High School, and I am the instructor for the Cooking Matters course. Basically, I have collected ingredients and recorded the instructional videos for the program and taught the participants how to cook with uh, more advanced seasonings and um, taught them more kitchen skills than they previously had before starting the class. We did originally plan to do these in person before COVID hit, but due to COVID, we decided to take a different route and I recorded them in my kitchen at home and then uploaded them and had someone edit them for me. It worked pretty well. We have a little island in the kitchen and so I uh, scooted the island out and set up and I have a, a tripod that I put my phone on and recorded that way. When we started the program back in early summer, we were doing a lot of tomatoes, potatoes, onions, local stuff like that. And then as we progressed into the winter, we've done a lot of squash. We've done a lot of uh, turkey, some meats and stuff like that. And it's just, it's good food that um, doesn't have preservatives in it. It doesn't have any added added stuff like that. And a lot of it's organic. And so there's, there's no pesticides or anything. We center around the My Plate idea and each recipe that we do has at least three of the five my plate uh, categories which would be um, meats proteins stuff like that uh, dairy fruits and vegetables grains and um, oils we incorporate at least three of those five into every meal and so people can kind of get a feel of what they need to be eating to feel good colin has been working at lost river market for several years and he has a lot of experience with fresh produce I also had the chance to talk with Donna Charles from the medical clinic. My name is Donna Charles. My role in the nutrition prescription program as a nurse at Southern Indiana Community Healthcare, I would recruit the patients to be in the program. We would do some data collection based on their A1Cs to see if they qualified to be in the program. I stopped Donna to ask what an A1C is. Oh, an A1C is um, a test of your blood sugar. It averages out for the last three months. So it takes all the lows and all the highs and it gives you an average number. And they made this test up so diabetics couldn't be good two or three days before they went to their doctor. And then their doctor sees the good numbers. So this test was uh, made up for that reason. They can actually see what's been going on for the last three months. So we ran numbers on um, A1Cs to see if patients qualified and then recruited the patients. And from there, I would take in their biometrics, their weight, waist circumference, A1C, and cholesterol levels. To qualify for the program, patients needed to have an A1C of 7% or greater, 
which places them in the diabetic category. They also accepted a few patients in the pre-diabetic category who also had elevated cholesterol levels. We took a baseline biometrics. If the patient had already had, say, an A1C or some blood test results in their chart recently, we would take those and not have to collect them again. But if they didn't, then we would take a baseline the biometrics, and then we do it again in three months, and then we'll do it again when the program's completely over, which is about six months. Greg Emmons is one of those participants. I met with him outside of the Lost River Market in Delhi in Paoli in December, after one of those Saturday evaluations with the program team. I'm Greg Emmons, and I've participated in this program. I'm a full-time truck driver and also work on family farm part-time. I asked Greg what he grows on his farm. used to do corn mainly and hay with cattle, and now I'm basically doing hay and working on getting back into cattle. I asked Greg about his experience with the nutrition prescription program. I've done the nutrition boxes, which the food was provided, and they give you the steps on how to prepare it and what you need. Part of it was a little bit of a learning experience for me because I got to try different foods that I hadn't had not tried or even thought about trying together. And it um, it was, uh, I guess I would call it an enlightening experience on seeing a little different ways to use different foods as a meal that I hadn't actually considered before. One of the big things I liked, I'd always considered sweet potatoes as something that uh, usually cooked in the oven with like some butter, brown sugar, and marshmallows. And in this program, I had it as a shepherd's pie. I don't remember all the ingredients in it, but I mean, in place of your regular mashed potatoes, it was the sweet potato, which I had never really considered in that form before, and it uh, it was actually very good. I mean, it was something that after having it, I would do the same thing again. <laughs> not really new to cooking, but as a truck driver managing diabetes, he's been pushed to get creative. Driving a truck, I don't have a lot of time, but I do carry um, a skillet and a crock pot that I can plug into the 12 volt system of the truck. So with that, I can, my skillet I mainly use just to heat some soups up or other foods that I can do relatively quick that way. And then the crock pot, I have taken the time to uh, get stuff ready and take it with me so that I've made like my own vegetable soup while I'm on the road. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there's there's times with what I do, I'll skip lunch. And I I do that quite a bit while I'm on the road, just because of my particular job on, on my deliveries. So in place of lunch, a lot of times there used to be a number of places on the truck stops that done it, and now there's not so much. Now they'll have like the cups of um, 
say sliced apples or grapes but at one time there was a lot of those places that also carried a package that would have carrots broccoli cauliflower celery radish with a little cup of ranch dressing and some of them were just the vegetables together i don't see that as much anywhere anymore so what i've done a lot of times is sunday evenings run into the store and then i will pick up any any number of things from grape tomatoes broccoli cauliflower celery carrots and when i get in on sunday evening i, I wouldn't cut it all apart rinse it all off let it dry a little and then usually put it sometimes in individual containers and take what i know i need for the week and then i've also carried um, like ziploc bags so i can put a mix of stuff in it and in my cup holder instead of in one cup holder i would have my water and then the other one, I could set this Ziploc bag in it where I could reach it going down the road. And I would snack on the vegetables at noon instead of, you know, versus a, a fast food place. So I, this past year, even before this program, working with my doctor, I've been working on a number of ways to maintain the ability to keep my health card in order to do this job. Greg explained to me what he meant by keeping his health card? Uh, my, my health card for my CDL license. You have to be um, insulin free, basically. One of my grandmothers was on it and I watched her give herself shots daily. And I always said, regardless what, I, I don't want the shots. Avoiding those insulin shots has been a big motivator for Greg in managing his diabetes through diet and exercise but he's coming up against some built-in barriers related to his work. The length of what I've done, well, this past year and a half, two years even, and then with this program, is it's showing me a lot more where I'm dealing with the diabetes side of it, the, the sugar levels. I realize what they told me that I may need to consider a different job. I can see where that is actually going to be more beneficial, and I've actually started looking at a different job or different jobs where instead of sitting in a truck 12, 14 hours a day and then just laying down in the back to going back to a job where I'm actually physically active throughout the day. So it sounds like he might be moving on from truck driving at some point. But in the meantime, Greg Emmons is going to great lengths to make sure he eats right while he's on the road. After a short break, We'll hear about what he's got cooking in the cab of his truck. Stay with us. Kate Young, this is Earth Eats. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Greg Emmons, 
He's a participant in a nutrition prescription program as one element in his plan to manage his diabetes. As a truck driver, he's on the road all week, where healthy eating is a challenge. Truck stop dining doesn't exactly support the dietary changes he's aiming for. Greg has taken matters into his own hands by prepping vegetable snacks ahead of time and by cooking in his truck. He takes an electric skillet and a crock pot on the road with him. I asked him what he's got cooking. Once in a while, I, I will take some stuff that's already been, uh, some soups that I've already had cooked. And um, anything even from like a, a meatloaf or chicken breast where I've grilled them like on a Sunday and had that stuff where I can just put it in a container and then pull it out. Some of it would be reheated, but then like the stuff I put in my crock pot, even though I've already pre-cooked the chicken, there'll be times that um, I try to take frozen vegetables with me because I do have a small freezer in the fridge on my truck. And I prefer the frozen foods on vegetables a lot of times over some of the canned stuff. Because you, I mean, you've got the, ex, you do have additives in canned stuff that you do not have in the frozen stuff. So I, there's more of a natural flavor. So then I can stick with like salt and pepper. I love peppers uh, of any type. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of carry a mix of that stuff whenever I do that so that I can then turn around and decide if I want to just fill the thing up or whether I want to try to do it for just what I need for the day. And sometimes I'll do it where I'll fill it up and at the end of the day when it's ready, I've got it there to eat. I let it sit there and cool down and then put the, just pull the crock up out of the canister and set it back in in the fridge to, to keep it. I feel like I get a, a fresher meal with less additives in it. Of course, I wanted to hear more specifics. I've done a soup, like vegetable soups, chili. I have taken like um, a pork loin roast or chicken breast where I've cut it in strips and throw that in with vegetables. Sometimes I'll carry a mix of vegetables that are like um, mixed bell peppers, chestnuts, um, the water chestnuts, maybe some corn and beans, uh, red skin potato mixed in with it. It just it's, it kind of varies on what type of frozen mix I pick up. And then, you know, I'll just let that sit in there and cook for four to six hours. And it's, I, I try to start it by noon and it, <laughs> that aroma off of it circulates throughout the truck. So you're wanting to stop, but you know, you need to keep going to finish your day out. But it's, um, I do a little bit of everything. I mean, I, I have even taken raw meats like uh, pork chops and chicken breast and just put them in that crock pot with just a little bit of water and some vegetables and just let them, yeah. let them cook throughout the day. I asked Greg about his experience with the nutrition prescription program and if there were more recipes that he'd tried. He had mentioned the sweet potato shepherd's pie. Another one, I'd had it before and I can't remember 
how that was. Now, I think it was a, I believe that was a soup we made out of it, the uh, butternut squash. And I have had it in the past where you just half it, clean it, or, you know, clean the inside, and then rub some butter on it and stick both halves in the oven and bake it and have it that way. Prior to this, there's something that I'd tried and I hadn't had for years. It was something one of my grandmothers had done was the uh, Kushaw squash. You don't really see those that much anymore. But I can remember her making the pulp out of that. And I never thought much about it. And I knew she had made some pies whenever I was really young. And then later on, she quit making them so much. But I remembered that. So then this past couple of years, I've got started on that and got me one a year. If you aren't familiar with this type of squash, it's a crookneck variety with a green and white striped skin. And some of these squash are huge. Think the size of a small toddler. One a year is plenty. Past couple of years, I've got me one a year and cook it down so that I can put it back. And I've the past two winters, like for around Christmas, the recipe I've got she had actually makes two pies. But I've done that, and that's another thing that I found. Versus going and get a cake or a, a boughten pie, I can make this Kushaw squash pie, and that helps me control my numbers for diabetes. I mean, it's yes, it is, it is sweet in a way, but then there's natural sweetness to it that some of the natural sugars I've found don't affect me as much as adding sugar. <laughs> yeah, I like it a lot better, and. It, uh, that type of pie I found is, I, I don't, I stay away from sweets a lot more now, especially through this program than what I used to. But I found too, at this time of year through Thanksgiving and Christmas, I can cheat more with one of those pies than I can a lot of the others. You know, especially versus a, a berry pie or a apple pie or peach pie. It, I could, I can eat more of one of the squash pies than I can one slice of the others. I always like it when the conversation turns to pie. Greg says he has shared support and tips with others in the program. His son has enjoyed some of the meals that Greg prepared, and he has been inspired to focus on his own health. When I went into this, I thought, well, maybe I'll learn something out of this, and I felt like I have. Overall, I think this is a good program, especially anybody that is willing to make some changes in your life. And that's, that's what I would say is probably half the battle is the willingness to, to follow what you would learn out of this program and try to make that a daily habit. Let's check back in with the folks running the Nutrition Prescription Program. I asked Julia Valiant about some of the barriers to good nutrition for people living in rural communities. We know that chronic degenerative diseases are the main challenge for our health in this country, perhaps especially in rural places. We know that rates of adult onset diabetes are high and conditions that go along with them, like heart disease and high cholesterol, and that 
There are pharmaceutical tools that can help people care for themselves when they find themselves developing these, these conditions, but it's also clear that they have a strong relation to food and drinks, and that when people approach food as medicine, that that can go a long way toward caring for their health. And that is part of what Lost River Market and the clinic were inspired to figure out a way to emphasize in their care of their patients and in their service to the community through food. I asked Donna Charles how she thought the program was going for the participants. When we do the biometrics at Lost River Market, Saturdays, the second one, we see a lot of changes. Um, mostly good, but we have seen some changes where patients, you know, either gained weight or gained waist circumference, things like that. But their biometrics are mostly good, I think. And we've been learning from how this is going for the people by like Donna explained, doing their biometrics or their health measurements before and after, and also a questionnaire about their food routines and their cooking routines to compare before and after. And we're also just asking them how it went for them in general. And so we're getting them telling us stories about how the project has gone for them so far and how it's gone for Lost River Market so far because it's their first time doing it and it's the clinic's first time doing it. And so then as a, la as a last step, we'll check in with everyone again in a half a year to learn what sticks for people and what has fallen to the wayside. I asked how they thought the COVID restrictions had affected the program. So when I was recruiting patients to the program, we had some patients that was um, interested in the program, but then they would say, do I have to go somewhere? So when I would tell them that it was going to be all online, they were very happy to participate. So I can see that that really played a role. Then you have other patients that would have really enjoyed the in-person classes, but I, I, all in all, I think they were all very pleased with the program so far. Another aspect of the online version was the Facebook group. I'm Samin Siddiqui. I'm a sophomore at Indiana University, and I'm a student intern. Samin works with Donna and the Community Health Clinic. She assists with recruitment and data collection, and she monitors the Facebook group, where participants are checking in with each other and sharing the results of their cooking efforts. They all get a certain recipe to do each week, so they're all posting the same food but they're just like different variations because everyone cooks a little different. But they have like pizza and squash and salad and just it's a lot of different varieties of food. I think it started to develop. In the beginning, people would just post pictures and they wouldn't really interact with each other. But I'm seeing like some key people that are, they'll comment on other people's pictures and it's kind of cool to see that grow. And Donna had a unique window into the program, since her husband was one of the participants. So with my husband being in the program, it really was, it opened up my eyes to the program. So it allowed me to see firsthand how the program was and what it was like, instead of just being there as a nurse to take their tests. My husband absolutely loved the program. He loved getting the produce boxes. It was a surprise every Friday to get that a box with the new recipe in it and to try the new recipes out and we still use them even today. So yeah, it's worked out well in our house. 
So it sounds like Donna benefited from having a family member in the program. Here's Julia Valiant on the ripple effects in the community. Yeah, and another part of the beauty that's been striking to me is that, you know, we've recruited these 60 people to this program and they're doing it. They're the people getting the education and they are part of these broad networks of people who are also benefiting from the program because people are sharing the recipes with their friends and neighbors and family. People are giving some of the food they make to their workmates and their neighbors. And so really it's reaching this big web of people that goes far beyond the people who are actually in the program. Farmers in the community benefit too. One of the goals for Lost River Market was to source the produce for the prescription boxes from local fruit and vegetable growers as a boost to the local food system. The final stage of the program is the six-month check-in this spring. Maybe we'll get an update and we can check back in with Greg Emmons. We've been talking with folks involved in a nutrition prescription program, part of the Southern Indiana Farm to Health Initiative with IU Sustainable Food Systems Science, Southern Indiana Community Healthcare, and the Lost River Market in Delhi in Paoli, Indiana. Find more, as always, on our website, eartheats.org. All that crock-pot cooking that Greg Emmons was talking about turned my mind towards soup. Remember that vegetable Thai curry soup Arlen Llewellyn of Function Brewing made with us a couple of years ago? In case you missed it, let's hear it again. We're going to make our own curry paste. So the cheater version of this is that you absolutely could buy your own yellow curry paste. But we're going to go from scratch all the way. Yes, absolutely. So um, we are going to start in our food processor. So the recipe is written for Serrano chilies, um, which are typically easy to find at the grocery store. You can use jalapenos. Um, but I'm actually, in this particular case, going to use a mix of peppers that I've received from the chili woman. These are some ajipancas and Bolivian chilies uh, that we will also mix up with some jalapenos. So we want to do just kind of a rough chop on these. We come along with a medium shallot. We're just going to do a rough chop on that. So a really rough chop on some garlic cloves. Now we're going to get to one of my favorite ingredients, galangal. It's sort of like a fruitier version of, of ginger maybe. Um, it's just, it's so bright and fresh smelling. Um, I love it combined with ginger. It's kind of an ugly little knobby looking thing. So just like ginger, it's kind of tough. So we want to break it down into relatively small pieces before we put it in the food processor. And then we're going to get to a little ginger. I'm going to peel that as well. We are moving on to lemongrass. And it typically starts with a stalk that's about two feet long, three quarters of an inch in diameter. Uh, the first thing you want to do is cut off the very bottom. And then you cut it in half and you peel off the tough outer uh, leaves as well as the top half of the stalk and you're left with the tender inner core so we'll break down the lemongrass as much as we possibly can to try to help the food processor with that um, and then some cilantro so we're going to go ahead and put these things into the food processor and let the food processor do the work for us and 
Man, take a whiff of that. It's um, oh, lots wow. of bright uh, flavors that you could take quite a few minutes to break apart. You can definitely smell the ginger and the galangal and the lemongrass. A little bit of cilantro still. <clears throat> a little bit of heat released from those peppers. Um, and so far right now, it's actually kind of looking more like you were making a green curry. That's about to change because we're gonna add a few spices. So we want a half a teaspoon of coriander, tablespoon of turmeric, which is gonna get you the bright yellow. We want half a tablespoon of curry powder. So we're gonna just process this for a second to get, we've scraped down the sides and then we're gonna process this for a second to incorporate those spices. paste so again at this stage maybe you've uh, skipped this and you're just opening a can of yellow curry paste and now we're gonna proceed we're gonna um, get that cooking to that we're going to add three tablespoons of neutral cooking oil of your choice get this going over medium to high heat for just a few minutes you want it to uh, start to become extremely aromatic um, and start to caramelize a little bit in a few of the areas of the pot. Chef Arlen prepares the vegetables. One butternut squash, peeled, seeded, and cubed. She cautions against throwing all of the vegetables in a pot and cooking the soup for hours and hours. One of the advantages of making homemade soups is that you can control the different textures of the vegetables. In this case, we're not going to put all the vegetables all in at the same time. Different vegetables are gonna take different amounts of time to cook to a desirable texture inside of a soup. So we're gonna start with the vegetables that need to take the most time to break down and be soft and get those going first. And then we'll slowly add some more. And once we start adding those more delicate vegetables at the end that don't need to cook for very long, we're gonna take that soup off the heat pretty quickly. Chef Arlen strips Swiss chard and kale leaves from their stalks. She chops the stalks into half-inch pieces, chops the leaves into bite-sized pieces, and sets those aside. Then she adds the stock and butternut cubes to the simmering curry paste on the stove. Next, she pours in four cups of water, or enough to cover the vegetables in the pot. And we're gonna cook it for about 30 minutes. It depends really on the size of your vegetables, um, but you want them to start getting tender, not completely tender, because we are going to add more vegetables to it. The last vegetable to prep is the sweet pepper, seeded and thinly sliced. It's been cooking for about 30 minutes, and the butternut squash is starting to get tender. The stalks of greens are starting to get tender. The nice thing about greens is they always look like you're never going to fit them all in the pot, and they cook down so much that isn't usually a problem. So you can see the hot liquid is already immediately wilting the greens. Oh, it smells so good. Good, yes. Yeah, I mean, you're getting all that curry, but also now the fresh vegetables. So, now that our peppers and greens are in here, we're going to cook them for about 10 more minutes. Don't want to overcook at this stage, but you don't necessarily want to be um, munching on raw peppers either. So we have a Thai yellow curry vegetable soup um, that we've pulled, uh, we've basically added all the vegetables to and they've cooked. Um, those peppers and greens have softened and we're ready to just finish this up. So we're gonna add um, coconut milk. So one of the nice things about Thai curries in general is a 
explosion of flavors that hit your mouth. You get spiciness, you get sourness, you get sweetness um, right off the bat. And then depending on some of the other ingredients, you might also get some funky complex notes, some, um, some bitter elements depending on the vegetables you use. Uh, so in this case, we're definitely going for sweet, sour, um, salty, and spicy. And so we've got our uh, sweet coming in right now with some brown sugar. Uh, we already have our spiciness from the hot peppers that we put into the curry paste. We're definitely going to need some salt and some acidity. So we're going to add uh, four tablespoons of white vinegar and uh, some sea salt to taste. And then we get to do the best part, which is taste and adjust. Sweetness is coming through. There's definitely some spice. And I'm going to want to add a little bit more vinegar and a little bit more salt. I was conservative on both of those initially <laughs> because it's really hard to undo that. Garnish it with whatever you fancy. Toasted coconut, Thai basil, toasted uh, cashews, rice noodles. We're here on a Monday making a soup for the Saturday tasting uh, by design because whenever possible, it's always better to make soups in advance because the flavors will really develop and marry. Uh, it's important sometimes, I think, to if you're making something in advance and you don't think you like it, but it's kind of close to what you want, but you're not sure, don't do anything else to it. Let it sit for a couple days. Uh, you may actually love it exactly where it is once it's had time to hang out and mature. So The finished soup is a burst of color and flavor. You get contrasting textures from the different vegetables. The butternut squash is quite soft at this point, but you still get some chew from the peppers and the greens. Yeah, the flavors are so complex and the tanginess, like I didn't, I was a little nervous when I saw that vinegar going in, but it's just so perfectly balanced with that sweet and all the, awesome. all the spicy. This aromatic soup cooking session took place back in 2017. You can find the recipe at eartheats.org. We've got some new recipe videos on our YouTube channel. It's me cooking simple recipes in my kitchen with the occasional cat cameo. The latest one is my favorite kale salad with slow roasted tomatoes, pine nuts, and Parmesan cheese. Just search for Earth Eats on YouTube. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Ai Hasano, Greg Emmons, Donna Charles, Colin Spear, Samin Sadihi, Julia Valiant, and Arlen Llewellyn. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Toby Foster and from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Oh, 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 oh,